0: So my aim in this study has been to just show you a few different things that are in the Gospel of Luke regarding themes and repetitions, and that's where we're going to wind up tonight. I'm going to show you a few other little uh, themes that pop up in the book. What we have done over the last several weeks can be done really in any book of the Bible, Uh, You'll find that uh, different authors repeat different themes, uh, either very straightforwardly or sometimes very subtly. So when we study the Gospel of Luke, we'll find themes that are picked up sometimes in the other Gospels, but not elaborated on as much. And I think some of them tonight that I'll show you is certainly true of that. So what I wanna do is as we finish up this study tonight is just go through a few themes that appear in the handout that I uh, sent out uh, via email. I think it's uh, interesting the way Luke organizes his gospel. I probably should have done this earlier in our study, but I showed a map uh, that looks like this on Sunday morning when we were uh, talking out of the Gospel of Luke. And the entire structure of the book uh, centers around different uh, geographical spots. You'll find here that the early chapters are up in the northern part of Galilee, uh, where Jesus is born and raised in Nazareth. Uh, It is there he prepares himself through his childhood Uh, as he uh, readies himself for earthly ministry. And in chapters four through nine, he begins his ministry, not down here in the capital city of Jerusalem or in the tribal territory of Judea, but up here in Galilee. And that will be kind of the center of his earthly ministry until he begins to Uh, make his last journey down to jerusalem now jesus was a faithful jew and he would travel to jerusalem uh, to celebrate the feasts, but he would go back home one last trip though is concentrated on here in chapters 10 through 19 of luke where he's making that final journey through samaria uh, down into jerusalem And the last week of his life is picked up in chapters 19 through 24. Uh, We have the triumphal entry, we have the passion week, and then we have the resurrection narrative. So Nazareth, Galilee, traveling through Samaria, stopping at various villages along the way is the concentration of four through nine. And then uh, finally, um, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapters 10 through 19. And many of the miracles that he did there, and then finally arriving down in Jerusalem. So when we look at uh, the way the book is structured here, we can see that the flow of the book is pushing us to Jerusalem, where he finishes his work on the cross and the empty tomb. So uh, let's move ahead, and I'll Uh, talk about just a few other themes that pop up in the book. Now, the other gospel writers will touch upon this theme, but not as much as Luke. The uh, poor uh, that are in and being suppressed by the Roman Empire um, is put in the spotlight in the gospel of Luke. And What you'll find is that Luke is constantly uh, giving us portraits of the type of people Jesus hangs around with. And what he is doing is being criticized by the religious establishment that he is always having uh, his association with tax collectors and sinners and other people that were pushed to the margins of society. One of the things that is going on in the ministry of Jesus is pushing back on the popular theology of the day. This goes all the way back into the Old Testament, almost uh, all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, when uh, the people of Israel uh, do not uh, enter the land. And from then on, there was a theological prejudice that. Uh, if if you are doing well, you're being blessed by God. If you're doing poor, or you are poor, uh, then you are cursed by God. And basically, that's, that's kind of the mindset we find in the book of Job, and that's the accusation of his three friends. What you find in the Gospel of Luke is a poetic justice. Uh, you'll find that there is Uh, these moments in the ministry of Jesus, where he begins to kind of turn this popular theology upside down. And Luke's handling of that is very interesting. We find in the Gospel of Luke, uh, part of the Sermon on the Plain, rather than the Sermon on the Mount that's found in Matthew, is a combination of both Beatitudes and Woes. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are no Woes, until chapter 23, so those woes are pushed several chapters uh, farther in his composition. What we find, though, is in Luke, he combines these two things, and you find that uh, in chapter six of Luke, and what you'll find here is one of the things that jumps out is this opportunity of recognizing that Those that are blessed are the people that are on the outskirts or margins. And then those that are being judged by a woe is basically the people that are well-fed. These are people that have a lot of resources. So in chapter 6, verse 24, it says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. So four beatitudes rather than eight that you find in Matthew, and four woes. And what you find here is something more than a criticism against these individuals' net worth. I don't think that's what's at at the heart of all this what is at the heart of all this is people that had the power to take advantage of the poor to increase their riches and what i think is happening uh, in that day that has continued to happen for centuries is it seems as though certain people have the power to be able to push the resources and the riches toward the top leaving those that need it the most down on the uh, lower levels of society so that's why jesus will often uh, lift up the poor and that's why luke will uh, record some of these things and it begins very early in chapter one which is called mary's magnificat it's interesting down in verse 48 this theme is introduced By Mary, as she says, uh, my soul is going to glorify the Lord because he has been mindful of my humble state, verse 48. By the time you get to verse 53, uh, actually verse 52, he's going to bring down rulers from their thrones and lift up the humble. And then he introduces this idea of the riches. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. So again, it's kind of a a reversal, and what we find is uh, a poetic justice is coming in the eyes of God because of this systemic type of problem that is occurring within the first century. So I think that's the way to kind of introduce this topic that is thematically woven throughout the Gospel of Luke. You can see down at the bottom of the slide here, uh, Jesus, when he stands up in the Um, synagogue in chapter 4 verse 18 it's he says he came to bring good news to the poor and then uh, John's disciples um, ask if he's really the messiah and Jesus in chapter 7 verse 22 says well you know I'm the messiah because I've been preaching good news to the poor and that becomes a validation of his ministry now look how many more times this occurs in this next slide here uh, you'll find all the way from chapter 8 down through chapter 21, the theme of the poor versus the rich keeps coming back up. And even in the uh, theme of discipleship in chapter 8, we find this idea popping up here. So in chapter 8 of Luke, verse 14, it says this. <clears throat> He uh, is talking here um, about it's a parable about the sower and one type of heart condition which is what the soil represents in the parable it says in verse 14 the seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear but as they go on their way they are choked by life's worries riches and pleasures and they do not mature in other words uh, the most important thing to them is, is money and comfort and pleasures, um, and it's standing in contrast to those who don't know where their next meal is coming from or have no money to be able to uh, provide for their families. That's why sometimes you'll find in the Bible some of those individuals that are uh, bound up in slavery is because they sold their services in an effort to get money to sustain their family as well. So uh, this theme pops up all over the place. But if you look down the the list here, uh, you'll find that Jesus warns life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Um, A a, a rich fool, as Luke calls him in chapter 12, thought he was all set for life until he realizes that the one thing riches can't provide is a long life. So here's what he says in chapter 12, verse 16. Um, It it says here, uh, another parable. So a lot of this theme shows up in parables. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. They thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. So you see at the heart of this is security. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be married, because I've got enough. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fooled that very night you will, uh, this very night rather, your life will be demanded from you. So in other words, Jesus' point here, at, which is is uh, being shown in verse 21, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Well, how are we rich toward God? The implication is he is has plenty of uh, resources, but in his selfishness, he's not willing to share any. So a person that is rich toward God is someone who is generous in helping other people when they need it. Of course, we've talked a little bit about the poor man named Lazarus who lay at the rich man's gate. Uh, this, again, is another uh, parable that is being told about the rich man feasting every day. Uh, he is condemned to torment while the uh, poor man that is a beggar uh, is taken and carried to Abraham's bosom. Uh, so you can kind of see the theme keeps coming up here over and over. Probably the most poignant one uh, is found in the difficulty that's mentioned in chapter 18. Um, Riches get in the way of priorities, basically, is what um, this uh, particular statement of Jesus is saying. There's a uh, Uh, a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus in chapter 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life, which is in verse 18. And then after it says that he kept all the commandments, Jesus responds to him in verse 22, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And of course, the guy couldn't do it, as most of us, Or all of us wouldn't be able to do that, to give up what you've worked hard for, uh, to give up the resources and security. Verse 23 says, When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said this very provocative statement How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I don't think this is a commentary on individuals net worth. I think it's a commentary about priorities. And sometimes it's easy to get priorities messed up. And um, I think that's what Jesus is calling this rich ruler out on is his priorities. Now, on the other hand, there's a contrast. In the same chapter, Chapter eighteen, um, we we find that Jesus is going to move uh, in and predicting his death. So he's in verse thirty one. He takes the twelve aside, tells them that he basically is going to to travel to Jerusalem to die. But on his way, and that's a setup. If you were on your way to die, um, would you take the time to go into the home of a tax collector? Chapter 19, his name is Zacchaeus, and um, Jesus is the one that invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. So Jesus is traveling through this village. Verse 5 says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, who had climbed a tree because he couldn't see Jesus coming. He was in the back of the crowd. Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Jesus invites himself to the house of a chief tax collector. And it's there that Luke takes this theme and turns it around. And what he's showing is there are individuals who are able to prioritize things, and Zacchaeus does so. He's touched and he stands up and he says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, verse 8. And to that, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Salvation, in this case, is the deliverance from this power of the money that he had worked so hard for uh, and and was quite... Uh, uh, was quite uh, devious and violent in the way he uh, became very rich, and so this turnaround then then talks about the potential for all people to be able to prioritize things. And Luke finishes this theme in chapter twenty one when he goes to the temple. There is a widow there now. Widow. That's a theme that we'll pick up. I'm going to do a message in the next series that I do on Sunday morning. I'm going to take this this widow's uh, mite passage and talk about it a little bit, but that won't be for a few weeks. But um, Jesus looks up, verse 1, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, the poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and all that she had to live on. In other words, she prioritized God and trusted God to take care of her, even while she put these two small coins into uh, the treasury. Um, So you see what Luke is doing. He takes this theme, he stretches it out over the whole gospel and he lifts up at the very end, this widow who is poor, and there should be these rich people taking care of her, but she is insistent upon uh, taking care of her faith, more so than taking care of her riches. So that any questions on that? Do you see that theme kind of stretched all through the uh, Gospel of Luke? Any thoughts about any of these? Okay, then let's go to this slide. I showed this slide on Sunday out of this book called The Weirdest People in the World uh, by Joseph Henrich, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. And he uses this word weird as, um, as a um, outline of what we don't often see about ourselves that we have a Western mindset uh, most people are well educated we live in an industrialized culture compared to the rest of the world we're very rich and we have an emphasis on democracy now the reason I put this slide back up is the first century world was very different than this and it wasn't a Western mindset most people were it's an Eastern mindset most people were not well-educated. It wasn't as industrialized, even though Rome had its chariots and developments of technology of their day. wasn't industrialized. Most people were poor, and they lived under the regime of the Roman Empire. So when we talk about riches, um, I think that is a particular issue, especially in the West, because we live in a very unique culture that has these dynamics that other people around the world do not have. And, um, so interesting book. I got it out of the library. Um, very long book, 600 pages long. I just kind of paged through it a little bit. Uh, but, uh, this is the five main points of it. And I think it helps us see why so many people in our particular country often find um, find riches such a temptation because that's what we eat and breathe all the time around us. and I and so if you want to do further reading on it, uh, you can do so uh, by looking this guy up uh, on the internet or picking this book up from the library. Slow reading and very long. but um, anyways, make some good points. All right, any thoughts? Okay, let's go to a different theme. Uh, All through the book, there's this idea of table fellowship. Um, Jesus is always going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal in the book of Luke. Uh, He is an individual that only eats with tax collectors and sinners, but Pharisees as well he will provide a meal when he multiplies the bread and the fish. So you can look at this particular roster here of different places that he had dinner with Levi, the tax collector, Simon, the Pharisee. Uh, He he does a miracle of the multiplication of fish and loaves. Um, Now, this is fascinating. In chapter 11, there's another Pharisee that invites him to dinner, and this one is one that begins to turn these religious leaders on Jesus, and I I think this one probably needs a little bit of explanation. So if you want to go to chapter 11, uh, you'll see in verse 37... It says, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness again, that connects back to the previous theme. This guy was concerned about money. He says, you foolish people did not the one who made the outside make the inside also, but give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. And so this moment here, Jesus hits a nerve and the nerve that he hits is the riches. Um, You'll Notice verse 42, it says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint. In other words, uh, um, a tenth of your mint, rue, and all kinds of other garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. So again, it seems as though the connection with the Pharisee uh, meals that Jesus has is one that they're more concerned about their religiosity than they are about justice and fairness and that type of thing. Then he goes on and he challenges uh, in chapter 14, those that are invited to uh, a meal uh, to take the lower seats, don't take the prime seats, um, show some humility. And then he gives a parable of the great banquet um, in chapter 14, verses 15 and following, uh, the great banquet uh, is one that is talking about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is one where those um, who are on the outside, who would never, ever receive an invitation, are the ones that are invited in. Uh, you'll see here in chapter uh, 14, if you come down to verse 21 the master sends out the servant to invite people to come to this banquet and verse 21 is the response the servant came back and reported this to his master then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled the blind and the lame sir the servant said what you ordered has already been done but there's still room. And then the master told the servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them, compel them to come in so that my house may be full. So there's that desire of reaching all the people, not just a segment of the society. And of course, the last uh, picture of this table fellowship is the institution of the Lord's table Uh, when Jesus eats his uh, last supper with the disciples. And then in the resurrection account, he sits with the two Emmaus Road disciples. And as he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they see it is the Lord. So table fellowship seems to be an important theme that Luke uh, strings through the, the gospel as well. And I think this all ties in with the idea of hospitality that the call to follow Jesus is the idea of having hospitality uh, toward other people. Uh, Hospitality always costs us in terms of time and effort and money. Uh, And again, these themes are kind of interconnected at times. But I think ultimately, the reason that hospitality is a part of discipleship is because of the hospitality of God. And that's found in this banquet uh, parable. Go out, compel them to come in. Come on in, come on in. Uh, So hospitality is such that Luke sees uh, God and Jesus being hospitable, receiving hospitality. and, uh, And I think that's part of a bigger template. And what I mean by that is The way the Gospel of Luke starts out is God coming to this world, and the question is, how will humanity receive the person of Jesus? And the crucial point is, will we have enough hospitality to invite God to be a part of our life? And uh, so um, I think that's two sides of this hospitality theme that we find tied to the banquet or to the table uh, theme. I have some questions, comments? So again, going back, I'm not going to double back on this, um, Well, but this is where the Zacchaeus story comes into play again. Um, his encounter with Christ and his hospitality, not only to Jesus by inviting him into the house, but when he says, if I've done anyone wrong, I will pay back four times the amount. It's as if this change in him opens up his hospitality to the community as well. He's beginning to do that, which will bless the community, not just himself or his guests. And um, so salvation here in this statement, where in chapter 19, verse 10, it says the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost is not so much concerned about our destiny after we die. It's about whether we have an open enough heart to invite God into our world now so that we can be found and that we can become all that God wanted us to be from the very start of creation. Some thoughts on that? So this ties into another theme, and that is, what is the role of a disciple? So in Luke's gospel, I think the overall idea is that discipleship is about imitation, basically. It's not about becoming, um, everyone's not becoming exactly the same. It's about uh, modeling Jesus or using Jesus as our model, imitating Jesus. And a part of following him is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, even as he was, and it, again, it ties back into things like generosity toward the poor, uh, uh, the, the compassion of healing and forgiveness, and all those type of things. It's kind of the model. Um, and it's yet it is something that is very costly. From the moment Jesus invites his disciples to follow him, uh, he has warned them several times in the Gospel of Luke that it's going to take him to the cross. And I think by implication, he is also suggesting that there's a cost in being his disciple. If met any man come after me, let him pick up his cross and follow me. Doesn't mean that they would necessarily die physically, although all the disciples did die by a martyrdom's death, um, according to church tradition, except uh, the disciple John. But Yet at the same time, Jesus has been warning them all along that if you want to be my disciple, you want to be my learner, you want to be my student, uh, there's some prices that sometimes has to be factored in before you say yes. And we just saw that with the rich uh, ruler who couldn't count the cost, and um and thus he didn't become a, follow, a follower of Jesus, even though the invitation of Jesus is the same. Come follow me. It's the same invitation that he offered the others. Um, of course, you know, Peter and James and John and others uh, who were fishermen, um, they left a hard life. Um, and this rich ruler um, probably didn't have the same type of hard life in terms of physical hardship and and work that the fishermen did, but at the same time the offer was still the same to him as well. Any comments there? Another big theme in the gospel of Luke is the role of prayer. This is such a uh, centerpiece in the life of Jesus. Um, we see all through the gospel, he pulls away from the crowds at times to pray. He, It, he's, it says in chapter six that he spends the night in prayer before he chooses his 12 disciples. Uh, he uh, taught his disciples to pray for those who had abused them to forgive them. He uh, teaches the disciples the model prayer. And of course we know that as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Chapter 11 um, is a good chapter to think about this. Um, So if you go to chapter 11, the Lord's Prayer in Luke is a little bit different than in Matthew. It's shorter. Now this is interesting. When you hear the Lord's Prayer said in Protestant churches, they use the Matthew version. When you hear the Lord's Prayer in Catholic churches, they use the Luke version. So one uh, in Catholic Mass or Catholic funerals, they end with, lead us not into temptation. But then in Matthew's account, he goes on to say, Uh, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. So just interesting little differences here. But verse 1, chapter 11, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. So this is a regular practice of his. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Evidently, the disciples of Jesus found prayer as hard as we do. And what we find is that Jesus then says, well, "Here's a." he doesn't use the word model, but it that's what it is. It's a model prayer. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Now he follows with an interesting parable in verse five. So he teaches them this model of prayer. And then verse five talks about persistence, basically. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him then the one inside answers, don't bother me, the door's locked, the kids are in bed, that type of thing, but the guy keeps knocking, and so finally the guy gets up and gives this man what he needs, and here's the point of this story, verse 9, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you, for everyone who who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be open. I think the idea behind this is persistence. Many times we pray about something once or twice and then we give up on it. Uh, Here what we find is that the generosity of God is such that he wants to give good gifts to his children. It says so in verse 13. But we have to be persistent in the discipleship discipline of prayer Uh, which is, again, something that is difficult for uh, all of us. But it's not so much that we're trying to twist God's arm as much as him using this discipline to shape our hearts and to mold us and to mature us. So you can see the rest of the screen here, different places that Jesus prayed. Uh, It culminates with his prayer on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But the role of prayer does seem to be a very, um, very, very significant theme in the Gospel of Luke. Do you have some thoughts or questions or comments on any of that? Okay, we're about done here for tonight. Um, another theme that keeps popping up, and I want you to go to chapter 23 in Luke, please. Chapter 23. One of the things that Luke does is he wants to make sure that you know Jesus is innocent, innocent, that he was not crucified uh, because of any wrongdoing that he did, um, So it begins in verse one. Uh, You'll see it says the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. So the the whole manipulation uh, um, in kangaroo court that the uh, Jewish people who were trying to set Jesus up uh, for arrest and then execution um, begin to accuse Jesus of, subverting the nation look at verse two and they began to accuse him saying we have found this man subverting our nation he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar that's not true Uh, he said give to God the things that are God and get you know um, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's Uh, so um, that's not true but it's an accusation thrown at him and he claims to be a king. Now, there you go. That's going to be the threat to the Roman Empire. Um, And yet, Pilate doesn't take it that way. That's interesting. Look at verse three. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, are you a political threat? And Jesus says, yes, it's as you say. (laughs) I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of this nation. And then Pilate announces to the crowd, verse four, and to the chief priest, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Do you know what Pilate just did? He ignored what Jesus just said. Jesus just said that he was a king, right? Pilate could have very easily said, oh, your accusation is justified here. But he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. So he's trying to get out of it because he knows that uh, there's nothing Jesus is doing that's threatening the Roman Empire. Um, Actually, he's doing good in the world. But, verse 5, they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee. He's come all the way down here to Jerusalem. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When they learned that Jesus was from Galilee, nah, that's Herod's jurisdiction. What Pilate has been trying to do the entire time, wash his hands of the situation, send him back, send him to Herod. Well, Herod is in Jerusalem because of the Passover feast, but Pilate sends him over to Herod. And verse eight says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time, he wanted to see him. And he wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. Um, And so he asked him a lot of different questions. And the chief priest and teacher of the law were standing there accusing him. Verse 10. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressed him in a robe. Sent him back to Pilate. So Herod does this uh, washing his hands. Sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate recognizes that not even Herod has condemned him. Verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, rulers, and the people and said, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges. And neither has Herod. Verse 15, both Herod and Pilate. Now he goes on and says, I'm going to release a prisoner. Uh, Pilate hopes that they'll choose Jesus. They choose Barabbas instead. And, um, One last time, a third time, verse 22, Pilate spoke to them, what crime has he committed? I find in him no grounds for the death penalty. So that's three times Pilate has proclaimed his innocence. Herod proclaimed his innocence once. Um, And then to close off the chapter, there is um, Jesus finally hung on the cross One of the criminals is accusing him, just like the religious leaders, but the other then uh, says to that criminal on the other side of Jesus, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So how many times has that been? Herod once, Pilate three times, now the criminal, that's five times in the same chapter. And then finally, as the chapter is about ready to end, Jesus breathes his last, commits to God his spirit. And verse 47, the centurion soldier looks up and one last time says, surely this was a righteous man. In other words, this man's innocent. So, You have five times in the chapter uh, that Luke is insisting on telling all of these episodes so you know that Jesus is innocent. And that becomes a repeated declaration in the book of Acts as well. In the speech of Peter, in the speech of Stephen in chapter 7 of Acts, these places as well insist on the innocence of Jesus. Any thoughts, comments there?
1: I have a question.
0: Yeah, go. I
1: was thinking of this a couple of times, but I didn't ask. But I thought uh, Christ's last words on the cross were, it is finished.
0: It is. um, In the other gospel. (laughs) So here, again, you're seeing the nuances of how the different gospel writers stress what they want to stress. So there's seven statements of Jesus on the cross. Um, a couple, It. I think this is on our YouTube channel. Um, I don't know. I don't, it wasn't last year. I think it was two years ago during Lent. I took the seven statements of Jesus on the cross and did some little videos of it um, oh, okay. and stuff. So That is kind of a well-rounded perspective of what's recorded of Jesus's words on the cross. You know, behold your mother, Uh, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, Uh, those type of things. Um, But it's interesting, your comment is very good. He breathes his last, father into your hands, I commit my my spirit. Prior to that, though, uh, Matthew will suggest that He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so all of these, who knows how these statements, how close were they together? Was this stretched out over a couple of hours that he hung on the cross? Is it all toward the end? I'm not sure that the gospel writers tell us, but um, again, you're seeing again the uniqueness of how each gospel writer stresses certain things, uh, and other gospel writers choose a different emphasis. In this case here, um, it's all a part of this innocence package in chapter uh, 23. I don't know if that helps, Mark. Yes, it does. It does. Okay. All right. Other comments? Okay, here's my last slide for tonight. So I hope you don't, I hope, the, my, my hope is that you appreciate the beauty of these gospels and the uniqueness of them and the richness of each gospel writer and how they choose to portray not only Jesus, but his ministry By the things that they record. And uh, Luke is not just a gospel writer, he's a great storyteller. And it's not just the story of Jesus, but also the early church, because this is only the first of two books that uh, claim Luke is the author. And so you have the story of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, you have the story of the church that uh, Jesus promised to build upon the confession of Peter in the book of Acts. So it's a very engaging type of book. And uh, the Gospel of Luke is the longest of the four Gospels. Um, But each of them have their own emphasis. Each of them have their own themes. Each of them have their own way of telling the story of Jesus. So I just wanted you to get a feel for that a little bit because I I was trying to complement what we did on Sunday with uh, this Wednesday night study. Let me uh, get us all on screen here for a moment. Do you have any other uh, comments, questions uh, that you'd like to talk about before we close our study tonight? Okay, well, you're a very quiet crowd. Uh, but you can, uh, you can always go back and, uh, and look at this at your leisure, uh, you know, read through the gospel, kind of keep some of these themes in mind. Um, actually, that's the way I think you can really appreciate uh, a lot of the uh, biblical text is knowing what to look for. And, so, hopefully, I've given you a little bit of things to keep an eye out for. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you, the more you read it, the more you'll observe. Um, you know, it's not, I did not exhaust this by any means, but um, hopefully, you know, as you go through it, you are more comfortable with the text and you begin to notice your own uh, observations uh, that jump out at you as well.
1: I think, mean, you know, it's, it presented, this, I would say, some of the complexity of the book. You know, in other words, it's, it's very easy to read the Gospels and just kind of read them as a story mm-hmm. and, not, and not realize a lot of, you, a lot of what, you, what you've gone through in terms of analyzing it from different perspectives and um, with with different themes or different... I don't know what the word, right word is, but...
0: Um. I think each gospel writer is very nuanced. <laughs> and um, and I think that's what you begin to observe, the complexity of those nuances that you find in the gospels. And uh, you find it in John, too. I mean, um, John uses a completely different approach. That's why he's not called one of the synoptic gospels. So... The same stories you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not found in John. John stresses an entirely different set of things. And uh, so, you know, just when you begin to observe these things, you appreciate the beauty of the text and how it came together and uh, how it reads, for sure. Any other thoughts?
1: All right. Well, last quick question. Yeah, go ahead. You know, when you go back to the development of the Gospels, in other words, Luke wrote, but obviously over history, the different conferences and the different over, you know, many, many centuries, it it evolved. Um, How much, I mean, is there a sense of how much it's evolved and how much the, the book has changed? If you know what I'm saying, in other words,
0: you mean how much? Um, you how mean much, by uh, the by the later church in terms of uh, adjusting the text? Is uh, that what? No, I
1: even mean? even the even the, the early church. You know, the early church in terms of the who, who Catholic Church probably primarily eventually, but um, it's just unclear to me where you know the the, the history of how these books were developed over time would be interesting. In other words, what what was the first? Manuscript. Well, well, yeah. What was the first manuscript, or who de- who who developed that first copy of what was in the in the book of in all the books? You know, but in, but, that's, but particularly in, the, in I think in the New Testament, obviously. But the letters may have been a little clearer. But in terms of the gospel, the gospels, you know, um, I don't I don't have a good sense of that of how it of, of ultimately came together. You know, at, at these different conferences, if you want to call them that, of, of religious leaders and and. Kind but of like the,
0: the councils that you're talking about right. that that would come together and yeah. uh, that type of thing. Um, you don't really get into some of those early church councils, like um, you know the Council of Nicaea, the um, Council of Chalcedon, um, and Constantinople and different places, until there is a challenge to the authority of who is at the head of the church. So in other words, a lot of things that begin to emerge have kind of some political elements to it as well. It's So the early church, I would say the first couple centuries, um, up until it's written down... Uh, again, these Gospels are being written, recorded, and, and copied, you know, at the earliest 40 years after the life of Christ. So it seems as though the early church said to itself, oral tradition and the stories of Jesus are important enough that we want to have it written down. So um, the early church um, begins to collect these stories. And I think guys like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I think there are some others that didn't make it into the Bible, begin to take this information and they begin to record it. Then you get into the battle a little bit when the early church tries to begin canonizing and formalizing what books are accepted and what books aren't. Um, that's where a lot of the disagreements come about. So there are different early church fathers that like certain parts of what's in the New Testament, and they didn't like other parts. For example, this is much, much later. Uh, Martin Luther had did not like James' epistle at all because he stressed faith by works rather than um, justification by faith. That's much later. But you have that same thing going on. So as early church teaching begins to develop, there is the stress of the early church leaders to say, what are we going to crystallize into creedal form that we will say this is what we believe is orthodox teaching? Now, others will be condemned as heretics. Um, They're excommunicated. uh, In some of church history, uh, some of them will actually be executed. But um, what you have, I think, in the early church councils is this tension between different elements of teaching that have come out of the early church church and so you have this stress upon: we need to agree on a certain amount of books, and we need to agree on what type of theologies we feel these books teach. And so, so, so,
1: so the gospel, the Gospel of Luke, it existed in a written form while Luke was still alive, or was it, or, or was it later pasted together based on on people's recollections and and you know and, and sort of cult- that,
0: that goes back to our very first study when we were talking about um who is the actual author of mm-hmm. luke is it luke himself and if it is then he wrote the manuscript that would be the template i guess whereby other copies and other scrolls uh would be generated because by that time, there you got churches that have been scattered across the Roman Empire. And so these copies of scrolls would be very valuable. Um, if it's not Luke, if it's not Luke, the author is trying to use Luke as the authority figure that would gain acceptance in the early church. Now, I don't see that there's any reason why we can't accept Luke authorship here of the gospel and the book of Acts. But what it does mean is that Luke is living at the time where at least in its um its initial form, the Gospel of Luke um, was generated by him and was copied by scribes. There are variations between the manuscripts. That's true of all the books of the Bible is it intentional probably not the majority of the time most of the time it's just scribal mistakes that have been made in copying but sometimes there might be things that are omitted or added so this is um in mark's gospel and in john's gospel there's a, pr- a very prominent example of this so in mark's gospel um, the very last chapter, chapter 16, if you look at the notations in a study Bible, it'll say uh, chapter 16 wasn't in the original or earliest manuscripts. Maybe original isn't the best way to say it. Uh, the earliest manuscripts. In John's gospel, the story of the woman who is caught in adultery, you'll see a notation in the margins in a study Bible that says this wasn't in the uh, earliest manuscripts either. So now there's choices to be made. So what happens is as uh, as scrolls are copied, you have different families of manuscripts, those that don't have Mark chapter 16 and those that do have Mark chapter 16 and so forth. So when contemporary translators are are choosing what they're going to do with the manuscripts that they have as they translate it into English or French or German or Croatian or whatever, um, they make choices. They make choices about what they say is primary text and what needs to be noted as um, additional text that wasn't in the original manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts. I keep saying original we don't have the original manuscripts, okay? We don't have what is called the autographer. We don't have the original uh, scrolls that Luke put his pen to. But we do have early manuscripts. And what you do is by textual criticism, you try to see what is the most likely reading of the text uh, out okay. of the manuscript evidence that you have. I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah, it helps but yeah, there is an ongoing evolution. You're right, bud. And I think that's that we have to note that. And uh, your dogs want their treat. Yeah. <laughs> it's that time, right? 803.
1: It's, you know, we're, running late, we're running late here. Running late here.
0: So, anyways, they're right on time. Dogs know that internal clock. Don't they? they do. Especially that one when it comes <laughs> to food. All right. So. Thanks for hanging with me. And uh, next week, we're going to have an interesting study as we uh, begin a new study next week. And I think you'll uh, find that uh, we together will begin to uh, continue to learn even about the parables, how they came together and different things like that and many of the not parables uh the Psalms rather um the Psalms will uh one of the favorite sections of the uh, of the Bible uh I think we'll learn a lot more about so that's what we'll start next week okay so thanks Larry. all yeah. right that's I great. hope you have Thank a you. wonderful good night. evening okay and bye okay bye-bye we'll see bye. what they're doing yeah <laughs> good night